Tilt. Happy birthday. Thank you. Morning, church. Man, so many things to celebrate in church. So cool to be a part of the baby dedications and the generosity of our church. If you did miss last week, I shared a message. Um, and the concept or the idea was don't get used to the dark. And uh, the story came from, or the sermon came from a story where um, our lights went out seven o'clock at night um, and my two kids were in the one room and obviously sheer panic. Um, and as I kind of made my way through to them, they clung onto my legs and held on. And then I had to let them know that we've got to go and light some candles and find some matches. And so we lit the candles and we all kind of uh, stood around the light and uh, that was kind of the space for the first five minutes as my kids were acutely aware they kind of uh, four and two at the time um, and they were acutely aware of the darkness and so they clung to their dad and they chased after the light uh, five minutes later their eyes got used to the dark and all of a sudden my kid Emma was in her room um, her candle had gone out and she was playing happily in the dark and the concept or the idea that we spoke into last week was be careful that subtly or slowly the enemy doesn't get us to be used to the dark. I thought that we would do a follow-on this week about darkness and about the deception of darkness. It was a line that we threw out a couple of times, 72 times in the scriptures we see this idea, do not be, do not be deceived. Um, and so I wanted to share a little bit about the deception of darkness. And perhaps today, pull back the curtain just a little on the strategy of the enemy. Now, I know that sometimes this idea of the devil on your shoulder or kind of, you know, a pitchfork, and, um, but the devil is real. The enemy of your soul is real. He has a real strategy and he really doesn't like you. He goes by many names in the scriptures. I'll tell you a couple of them. Some um, know him or refer to him as Satan. Others of us speak of him as the devil. Uh, scriptures refer to him as Lucifer, the prince of darkness or the antichrist. And the Bible describes him as an accuser, a deceiver, a tempter, a thief, a murderer, the father of all lies, and many, many, many other names are attached to this enemy of our soul. 1 Peter ch uh, chapter 5, verse 8 says this, Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. John chapter 10 verse 10 starts like this. It says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The scriptures are trying to make a case that there is not just an enemy of your soul, but he hates you. And he has a clinical plan to take you out. And so perhaps today, if we could get a little look at what the scriptures speak about when it speaks about this deception of darkness and how the devil is a liar, liar, pants on fire kind of character. And John chapter 8, verse 44, says it like this. When he lies, he being Satan, the devil, the enemy of your soul, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. And the father of all lies. Can we take a moment just to pray? Really want God to do something in your hearts today. And so as we pray together, I pray that it wouldn't just be me praying, but you saying, okay, God, whatever you want to do right now in the next 25 minutes, you do it. Father, thank you that not by might nor by power, but by your spirit today, that you would reveal, that you would prod, that you would prompt, that you would cause us to step into 
new spaces with you. And right now, every strategy of the enemy, I thank you, God, that I can call it null and void in the name of Jesus. And that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done in these next 25 minutes in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So, look, the devil lies in many ways. Um, but I just want to look at two today, and I think he predominantly lies in these two ways. Obviously, there are many other ways that he lies, but I think there are two ways that he likes to lie to us, and that is through temptation and accusation. Temptation and accusation. So before we sin, it's temptation, and then after we sin, it's accusation. You know how it is. Um, before you sin, He'll spin this web of lies. He'll go like, no, man, you're awesome. You, you, you deserve it. It's okay. Nobody really cares. It's not that bad. You can do it. And so he butters you up. And then the moment you sin, he like names and shames you. The moment you do the thing that he was buttering you up to do, he starts to call you out on it. He goes, you're good for nothing. you you're a real piece of work. How dare you do that? Don't you dare tell anyone. You, you call yourself a Christian? You a dad? What kind of dad behaves like that? What kind of father? What kind of wife? What kind of husband? And he names and shares. So he tempts, temptation, and then accusation. And I want to unpack these a little today. Because I believe that there's a strategy of the enemy that he will convince and then condemn. He'll coerce and then clap. He'll butter you up and then beat you up. He'll tempt and then taunt. And today I'm hoping, as we look at three different blueprints in the scripture about sin, temptation, accusation, my hope is that you like the kid on the play school field will look at the devil and go, liar, liar, pants on fire. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. That is not true. I will not fall for that. That accusation is not right. That temptation is not good. I will not walk in those ways. And so the three accounts that we're gonna look at that kind of give us this picture or this blueprint of sin, temptation, accusation, and how Jesus responds quite radically different to how many of us respond to sin are found in three different places. The first account is found right in the beginning of time and right in the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. And it's the account where Adam and Eve eat the fruit. So we're gonna call that account one small apple for man, one giant fall for mankind, and we'll come back to that in a moment. The second account that we're gonna look at is the account where Jesus and the devil have a showdown where Satan comes and tempts Jesus three times. Are we gonna call that the rumble in the jungle? Which is completely not true because it's actually in the desert. But um, if you know anything about your boxing, the rumble in the jungle is like goes down. George Foreman versus Muhammad Ali goes down as one of like the biggest fights of all time. So we're gonna look at the rumble in the jungle. And the third account is found in the New Testament. And it's the account where a woman is caught 
in the very act of adultery, and we're going to call that account the scandalous text, and I'll explain that in a little bit. Let's look at Genesis, one small apple for man, one giant fall for mankind. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 through to Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, it starts like this. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. This passage is extremely important and we're going to come back around to it when we look at the scandalous text because this is the way that humanity responded to God pre-sin. Without sin, they were naked, completely exposed, but there was no shame. So we'll wheel back around to Genesis chapter 2 verse 25 in a moment, but it goes on to say this in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all wild animals that the Lord God had made. Satan is shrewd. Make no mistake, the devil is intelligent, cunning, and calculated. Like he's not the little cartoon. The devil is intelligent, cunning, and calculated. And if we want to go through life and just pretend like the devil or the enemy doesn't exist, then we will fall to his ways and his strategies more often than we ought to. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Notice the question, did God really say that? One of the ways that the enemy likes to work is to sow doubt. Did God really say that? Is God really good? Interesting observation. When the devil talks to you about God, he lies. So he goes things like, did God really say that? Is he really good? Can you fully trust him? Isn't he a little unfair? Isn't he a little bit unfaithful? He lies. But when the devil talks to you, he accuses. So he lies about the character of God and he accuses you of things that you aren't. You're not good enough. No one likes you. You're never going to make it. That's one mistake too far. You're not going to make a comeback. Accusations and temptations. So he's trying to deceive Eve about what God said. And this is Eve's response. Of course we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden. The woman replied, it's only the fruit in the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God says you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. He responds, being Satan, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. Liar, liar, pants on fire. There were actually two deaths that took place from this. There was a physical death that was going to take place, that was now introduced. And more importantly, there was a spiritual cutting off or a spiritual death that took place. The devil's native tongue is to lie. You know, at least sometimes we have a conscience and so we try and like work our lies. You know, you, you realize like how fallen we are as humans when you have three kids. My kids lie to me most days. And I know they're lying to me. But the devil is like, he will lie. He says, you won't die. They did die. Goes on to say, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. What was the temptation here from the devil? You will be like God. For many of us, 
We might not put it in those words, but that's what we want to be. We want to be in control. We want to choose where we're going to spend our money. We want to decide how we're going to live our lives. We want to be at the top. And this is the temptation. Often the temptation that comes from the enemy is always about elevation. It's about you being on top. And it says in verse 6, the woman was convinced. The devil is a great convincer. I mean, consider the fact that he managed to convince a third of the angels to go with him. If he managed to do that, you and I should not believe he's this little thing sitting on your shoulder that is really just a cartoon. He is a great convincer of the lies that he speaks over your life. And so this woman is now convinced and she, it says this, she saw that the tree was beautiful and the fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it gave to her. Church, temptation looks beautiful and inviting and delicious and make no mistake, sin is enticing and exciting and may even taste delicious for a while. Like sin is not a like, oh, that's so gross. Sin is incredibly appealing. But we say a, a statement here often in the church and it goes like this. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. So she took some of this fruit and ate it, and then she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Suddenly. Nothing like the suddenly of sin. I mean, there's nothing quite like the suddenly of sin. I shouldn't do it, I shouldn't do it, I shouldn't do it, I think I'm going to do it, I, okay, I, I do it. Oh, immediately, shame, guilt, regret, panic, pain. The suddenly of sin, the switch from the devil, from temptation to accusation. Go for it, and then guilt and shame and regret and pain. And the next couple of verses are very, very important because there is a response of cover, hard, blame. Cover, hard, blame. A response that most of humanity respond in this particular way when it comes to our mistakes, our mess-ups, our failures, our flaws, or what may be known as our sin. And so... She's recognized that she's sinned, or they've recognized that they've sinned, and it says, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. They were acutely aware of their sin, and what was their first action? Let's try and cover it up. If you've ever broken something at somebody else's house, but they weren't in the room. <laughs> then you quickly try and just like put it back together there and see if it stays. Yeah, please, just until I leave, then whoever touches it next, like it'll be on them. We try and like cover things up. When the cool of evening breeze uh, was blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Not only did they cover themselves, but they hid. How often is that our go to. We hide from our problems. We hide from people. 
And worst of all, we hide from God. And then potentially the saddest scripture in the Bible, verse 9, then the Lord God called to them, where are you? Where are you? The sin had separated and the devil had deceived. And in verse 10, they respond. He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. So they covered, then they hid, then they had fear because of their shame and their guilt and their sin and their nakedness. And how often do we deal with our sin like that? We think, I'm going to hide, I'm going to cover, and I'm afraid of God because he must feel like I have disappointed him. I am a royal screw up. I've done this one too many times. God must hate me. And so our approach to God is not to approach God. It's to hide and cover. And then... Well, verse 11 says, Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I have have commanded you not to eat? And then verse 12 and 13 is like the famous play from all humanity. And that is the blame game. Listen to what happens in verse 12 and 13. The man replied, It was a woman you gave me. It was a woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God turned to the woman and said, What have you done? And she goes, it was the serpent who deceived me. She replied, and that's why I ate it. And so we hide and we cover because we assume God's disappointed and angry and mad and upset. And then if we are still somewhat exposed, then we've got to find someone or something to blame for us behaving the way we were behaving, cover, hide, blame. The assumption that this is the appropriate response to sin, to our mistakes, to our mess-ups. But in the next two stories, in the next two accounts, I'm hoping to show you that when the devil brings temptation and accusation, there's actually a different way. There's a God blueprint about how to deal with temptation and a God blueprint how to deal with accusation. And actually they're quite different from this hard cover, blame, fear strategy. So let's look at it on the first story, which is the rumble in the jungle, Jesus and Satan in the desert. And... uh, For context, Jesus has fasted for 40 days, has been led out by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Here it is in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. And let me just tell you, for those who perhaps don't know this passage, there's three different temptations that go on. And the interesting thing about these three different temptations is they give this unique perspective that perhaps all of humanity struggles with with these three kinds of temptation. It's not to say that there aren't other temptations, but these are perhaps some of the devil's strategies about taking out mankind. And so each of them got a unique temptation that goes on. The first is where the devil tells Jesus to turn the stone into bread. Let's read it in verse one. It says, then Jesus 
was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and nights, he was hungry. I'm sure that's an understatement. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice the first temptation was about prioritizing your flesh over faith. Prioritizing your cravings and your desires over what God wants for your life. The first was take stones, make it bread, and feed yourself what you want. And the enemy will spin that lie to you all the time. Just have what you want. Just get what you deserve. Just take whatever pleases you. He will sow lies to you that the flesh needs to be filled. But the Spirit of God or the Word of God says that we are sons of God, which means we follow the Spirit of God, which means we walk in obedience to God, which means that we choose faith over flesh. And so that's the first temptation. The second temptation is the devil takes Jesus up onto this high point of the temple and says, jump off and the angels will catch you. Here it is. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command the angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. Now, this one's not so obvious. The third one and the first one, I think, are quite obvious about what the temptation is. But I think we get a little glimpse from Jesus' response. Do not put your Lord, the Lord your God, to the test. Basically this. I'm not going to tell God what to do. God tells me what to do. I don't tell God what to do. I'm not going to test him. I, he doesn't work for me. I work for him. I'm, I'm after his heart, not just his hand. I think the temptation here is like, well, won't God just do it for you? Surely God will just, and there's a temptation to seek after the hand of God instead of the heart of God. Now God will bring the hand of God in our lives because he's good, but it's important for us to recognize that there is a temptation in our Christian faith that we become the master instead of serving the master. That we go after the hand of God for his blessings, but don't go after the blesser himself, Jesus. The third temptation looks at the devil taking Jesus right up to the top of kind of the mountains and showing him everything, all the kingdoms of the earth and saying, they can be yours if you bow down and worship me. It says, again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give to you, he said, being the devil, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The temptation here is that he took him up, he showed him all the splendor and everything he could have. The temptation here is that we would get the fame, the popularity, the power, the prestige, the position. We would get it all. And the enemy will get us selling our soul for that, whatever that is, the splendor we desire. And whether it be subtly or a little bit not so subtly, 
all of us find this temptation for the greed for more. Just a little bit more. More than we have now, more than our neighbor. There's that jealousy, that discontentment. And so this third temptation is that you would run after in this world the splendor of everything that your eyes see instead of choosing to say, Jesus, God, my life is yours. What you give me, I'm believing you for the best, but I'm not chasing after those things. Now, the one thing that is common amidst all these three temptations, the one thing that's common is the way in which Jesus fought off the temptation. In all three temptations, all three times, Jesus says, it is written. All three times when it came to having a strategy or a battle plan against the enemy, it wasn't his willpower, it wasn't his good intentions, it wasn't a 10-step plan, it wasn't even going to church. What it was is a conviction that it is written. He fought off temptation with the Word of God. A conviction that if God says it, then I believe it. He said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on the very word of God. He said, it is written, thou shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He said, it is written, we shall not worship any other God except the Lord our God. It is written. The problem is, church, you can't say it is written if you're not reading it. Christians are overcome by temptation, not because the devil is so strong, but because we don't know what is written. It's absolutely paramount that you and I as Christians don't let temptation overcome us and overrun us. And I really want to say this today before we go on to the third and final story. For all of you, for all of us, there are areas in our life where temptation is winning where it's running amok. And some of you have believed the lies, liar, liar, pants on fire. You've believed the lies that you will never overcome this area of sin. It just is what it is. I just, lust is just running havoc. Lack is just running, I'll never have enough. I wanna tell you today that you absolutely can overcome temptation by a conviction that says it is written. Temptation can be overcome and God can paint a different story for you. And so the last account is the account that we've called the scandalous text. And the reason that I've called it the scandalous text because scholars and scribes in the early days when they were putting together the scriptures were not too sure. In fact, some were sure that this particular passage shouldn't even find its way into the Bible. It was so scandalous. It was so hard for them to digest Jesus' response to sin that they were like, this is gonna paint a picture that feels like we're losing a little bit of perhaps control. And the story is about the woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And I'll tell you what, Jesus' response to this woman is scandalous. It's like, 
This is so not the way we've been conditioned to approach sin. And we'll read the story together. It starts in John chapter 8, verse 3, and it says, As he was speaking, he being Jesus, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. I want you to picture this. This is not just a nursery rhyme we're reading. This is a true historical account. They reckon she was probably naked. Like, they reckon they had pulled her out of the room. When it says caught in the actual act of adultery, literally, not happened three days ago. And she's lying there on the dust in the middle of all of these religious people who represent religion, who represent morality. Perhaps she may have had something to cover her nakedness, maybe a sheet, maybe not, maybe she's lying there. Imagine the embarrassment, the humiliation. Imagine the shame and the guilt. But more than that, look what the next verse says. Shame and guilt would have been something she would have taken based off of what the next verse says. The next verse says this. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says, stone her. What do you say? Now, this is very difficult for us to try and understand because nobody in their right minds today in our context would pick up a stone and stone somebody. But people were stoned in those days. This was not an odd occurrence. For her, this lady is not lying there wondering whether they're going to stone her. She has already processed that not only is she caught in the act of adultery with shame and guilt and embarrassment and pain and regret and remorse and who knows all the things that are going on, but she's probably having a panic attack, lying in the dust going, I am moments away from being stoned to death. And then Jesus, as only Jesus can do, slows everything down. I don't know what it is about the devil, but he always wants to speed everything up. Accusations, move stuff quickly. Jesus just never is rushed. Just bends down and starts doodling on the ground. Listen to what it says. It says they wanted to, they were trying to trap him into saying something they couldn't they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up and he said, All right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and doodled. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with woman, with only the woman. Now none of us know what was written. But there is one point of view that I appreciate and choose to believe, even though I can't prove it. And that is perhaps that Jesus knelt down and started writing the names of some of the women that some of those men had had an affair with. And all of a sudden they saw Melissa. I'm out of here. And then Sheila. And then Barbara. 
I don't know if these are any of the names. I'm trying so hard not to say any of your names. <laughs> but I love it. I love it because Jesus is like, okay, you want to play? She's like, I'll show, let me show you how to play. You want to come in here with your accusation and your judgment and your religious thinking and your pharisaical viewpoint? Okay, let's play. Now, I don't know that that's true, but I love the idea. What I do know is whatever he wrote caused them one by one to leave until it's just Jesus and this woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. These two verses are some of the most radical, perhaps even scandalous verses in the scriptures because this woman didn't get what she deserved. Jesus has a completely different response to the hard, blame, shame, guilt, cover-up kind of thinking. Jesus responds with three things. The first is, when it comes to our sin, when it comes to our brokenness, when it comes to our darkness, our mistakes, our failures, our flaws, make no mistake, the one place that Jesus wants to be is right there with you. Jesus is there, right in the mess, in the dust, not with an aggressive posture, but kneeling down, looking at the woman, The second thing that he does is he removes all accusation, all condemnation. He says, you truly want to work through your sin? It's never going to help with the cycle of accusation and condemnation. The accuser, the tempter, the devil, the enemy of your soul will keep you in guilt and condemnation. Jesus one by one will remove that accusation and that condemnation. And then he stands up and he says, now I tell you, now, once you've had Jesus in your presence and you've received grace, now I tell you, go and sin no more. Make no mistake, God does not want you trapped in the cycle of sin. He hates sin more than you. He sees the strategy of the enemy over your life. But it's Jesus and it's grace that enables you and I to go and sin no more. Listen to what 1 John 2 verse 1 says. It says, my dear children, I am writing to you so that you will not sin. Make no mistake, God doesn't want you and I to sin, friends. But listen to the next verse. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate 
who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. Do you want to know what an advocate is? An advocate by definition is a champion, upholder, supporter, backer, promoter, defender, campaigner, fighter, and crusader. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is in the midst of your sin. In your worst moment, in your furthest moment, when you least deserve it, the advocate stands up. The defender, the campaigner, the fighter, the one who will stand in the midst of your pain and your mess and he will remove all accusation and condemnation. There is an advocate. I think you and I need to make a choice to listen to the voice of the advocate, not the accuser. Listen to how Hebrews 4 puts it, and we're going to end with this verse. Hebrews 4 paints this incredible picture of this advocate, this defender, this high priest, Jesus says this, Therefore, since we have this great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way just as we are. Aren't you grateful? Whatever it is, friend, that you're going through, Jesus has been through it. Tempted in every way, understanding your pain, your struggle, your weakness. The verse continues and says, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. I'm more grateful for that line than I am for the line before. And I'm very grateful for the line that says that he empathizes and understands our weaknesses. But I'm more grateful for the next line. Because you know what it shows me? It's possible. It's possible to overcome that temptation. If he did it, and the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in me, then it's possible that I can overcome. He empathizes. He removes accusation and condemnation. He gets down to our level. He shows us grace. He's in the middle of our mess. And then He looks at us and says, now go and sin no more. Hebrews chapter 4 ends like this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you know? You know the story of the woman caught naked? I actually think that Jesus coming to earth was like, I don't know how, but somehow I need to replay Genesis chapter one and have version 2.0. I somehow need to show humanity that when they're naked, that shame and guilt and hiding and covering and blame is not the way. And so this is like Genesis chapter one, version 2.0. This woman is caught naked. And I reckon when she looks up at Jesus and he removes accusation and condemnation and says, go and sin no more, I think she's naked and has no shame. Like Genesis chapter two, verse 25 explained it to us. And because of that church, you and I can come 
to the throne of God with confidence, not with guilt or shame, but with confidence. And what we, re- we receive? Mercy, not guilt, not accusation, not disappointment, not anger. And we will find the grace we need in order to help us in our time of need. Can I pray for you? As you close your eyes, I want to tell you, I really believe that the devil is a liar, liar, pants on fire. He's got you believing that that temptation is far too great for you and you're going to succumb to it every time. That's a lie. And he's got you believing that when you mess up and you make mistakes, that you to run from God instead of run to God. And friend, I'm hoping today as we pull back the curtain that you will choose like that woman in the middle of your mess, in the middle of your pain to say, Jesus, I need, I need your help. And you will boldly approach the throne of grace. So with everybody's eyes closed, I just want to pray a really simple prayer. And that's perhaps for anybody who finds himself in the room today and you're going, hey, Cole, to be honest, I don't know Jesus. I actually don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. I've always seen him as somebody who has been angry or disappointed at me, but today I've got a different perspective. And I want to pray a prayer with you, if you'll let me, to respond to the love of Jesus. Say, God, I I surrender. I want to stop running from you. I want to receive you as my Lord and Savior. The Bible says the moment we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, we receive him as our Savior we receive eternal life. Everybody's eyes closed. If you want to pray that prayer today, I'm not going to embarrass you, just simply want to see where you are. I'm going to ask that you just raise your hand very quickly and you can pop it straight back down. Anybody want to pray that prayer this morning? I can't see anybody's hands up, but oh, there's a hand up. Awesome, thank you. Okay, church, I'm going to ask that you all just repeat this prayer after me. Say, Jesus... This morning, I surrender my life. Thank you for dying on the cross, for taking all my guilt, all my shame, all my sin, and nailing it to that cross once and for all. Jesus, today, I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's thank God for those.